This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. I'm very excited about today's podcast. This is a podcast that I've wanted to do for a long time. This is actually going to be part one of three podcasts on a case that Don West and I were a part of, along with our friend and colleague, Michael Pinella, who's a fantastic criminal defense lawyer here in Orlando, where I'm based. This case has the craziest facts. We've got a man named John DeRossett. He's allowed his troubled niece to live in his house. The niece has a terrible drug habit and has resorted to prostitution as a way of fueling her opioid addiction. On a particular night years ago, the Brevard County Sheriff's Department was conducting a sting operation to crack down on prostitution in the area. The deputies in charge of this prostitution sting operation make an unusual call. They violate protocol and travel to DeRossett's house to make an unwarranted arrest for misdemeanor prostitution on the niece. Everything goes completely wrong. The niece doesn't know these undercover officers are law enforcement. She thinks she's being kidnapped into the sex slave trade. She screams for help as she's being dragged outside the house. John DeRossett, a licensed concealed carrier, grabs his Glock. He comes running to her aid. He comes outside, peers into the very dark yard, sees two shadowy figures wrestling with his niece. He fires a shot into the air to ward off the intruders. By this time, there are deputies in his yard that he doesn't know about who open fire on him and a fire fight ensues. John DeRossett is shot twice. He shoots a sheriff's deputy twice, not knowing, of course, that they're law enforcement officers. And he is arrested charged with three counts of attempted murder on law enforcement and a very complicated and very interesting and extraordinary, frankly, self-defense case unfolds. It's a case that Don and I were uh, proud to be a part of. And I'm going to get to introduce you today to Mike Pinella, who's a great friend of mine and really a terrific lawyer who um, triumphantly defended John DeRossett in this case. Not only are there some important lessons for armed defenders and concealed carriers to learn from this case, but it's also a very unique opportunity for me to show you the insides of a self-defense, legal defense, and how complicated and crazy the legal defense for a self-defense shooting can be. Here's my conversation with Don West and attorney Michael Pinella. I'm the voice of this CCW Safe podcast in self-defense. Don West and I, we host this show and we talk about the lessons learned for concealed carriers uh, and we use 
high-profile self-defense cases that have been in the press to talk about it. Uh, people who don't listen all the time might not know who the hell I am or why I'm qualified to talk about self-defense cases at all. Uh, and today, uh, I think that folks are going to get a chance to know uh, me a little bit better. Don West's name is recognizable. Everyone knows that he was co-counsel on the, the George Zimmerman case. They might not know that he was... Uh, has done countless self-defense cases over his very long and distinguished criminal defense career, including uh, uh, being a uh, a federal defender in in death cases, which is which is fantastic. And and to think that I know uh, a lawyer of the quality of Don now is sort of fascinating to me because uh, over ten years ago. I knew no lawyers. I had no lawyers in my life. I wouldn't even know who to call to set up a will. Or if I got in trouble, God forbid, I have no idea who to call. And uh, by accident, I knew a lawyer in my Rotary group uh, over well, just 10 years ago now. And he happened to become the uh, lawyer hired to defend George Zimmerman in the high-profile shooting of Trayvon Martin. I had an opportunity to join that defense team and I met Don West through that experience and I met another lawyer named Michael Pinella who in fact wasn't a lawyer at that time he was a law student who had the audacity to come down from Gainesville and knock on a lawyer's door on a Saturday evening I think <laughs> and and won a place as a as a clerk on it and and now uh, almost 10 years later i'm lousy with lawyers i'm up to my eyeballs and lawyers i know estate planners and wills and trusts and uh, many many criminal defense attorneys and lots of civil plaintiffs lawyers uh lawyers of all different um i don't know scale and and influence i i know passionate fledgling public defenders who who call me up for tips on trying misdemeanors and I deal with civil plaintiffs lawyers who have their own corporate jets and of all those lawyers that are in my life I tell people all the time that if I ever got in trouble with the law that I would want Don West and Mike Pinella to represent me against the uh I'm sure corrupt prosecutor if I was being <laughs> if I was being prosecuted they'd have to be corrupt somehow because I'm such a, a a good person um and so this is the first time on this podcast that I've gotten the, the two of them together and we've had the opportunity to beyond Zimmerman we've worked on self the case self-defense cases together and there's one in particular that we're going to talk about today that was a, a case that Mike Pinella got uh it was the case in fact that got him to leave the public defender's office That's right. and start his own firm and you know most of the time you hear us talk about self-defense cases that Donald we're not that we weren't involved in they're cases that are in the the press they're high profile cases we watch them there's a lot of great lessons learned there some of them result in uh conviction for the people they weren't our clients i feel like a lot of these cases we could have no no uh, offense to the tried and true criminal defense attorneys who represented them but i feel like we could have gotten different results sometimes um but the truth is most of the time we can't talk candidly about the cases that we had direct involvement in 
because there's confidentiality with the people we represent, whether they're whether they're acquitted or not. It's just not appropriate. But well, you know, Sean, not only just confidentiality, which is required by the ethical canons, of course, but a respect for the privacy of some of the individuals, and frankly, especially some of those individuals that have been acquitted, because the last thing they want some 5, 10, 20 years later is a public discussion about what may have been the worst moment of their life when they were involved in a self-defense case, shot and killed someone in lawful self-defense, were ultimately acquitted, but would really like to close that book and keep it closed. They don't want their friends and neighbors knowing anything about that. So out of respect for that, in addition to the other ethical requirements, we don't talk about those cases unless it's a very special circumstance with very special permissions. And Mike, this is one of those special circumstances with those special permissions, right? Well, it is. I think in John's case, you know, he he really got a bad rap and was painted. I really just don't mind saying this. I think that he was there was a, a coordinated effort by law enforcement in a case where they empirically screwed up uh, to cover their tracks by painting him out to be not just a person who wanted to injure or kill cops, uh, but also a pimp and a person that was taking advantage of others and all it, really a wild story that was painted uh, around him. Uh, from the first press release that the sheriff in this case gave the night of the shooting. And so that sort of tainted the entire case and his life moving on from there. And because it was a political case in a very uh, in, in a county that gave a lot of respect uh, to their particular elected sheriff, uh, and because that narrative continued to be spun anytime the sheriff got a chance to give a public statement, uh, John not only was facing uh, three times life in prison uh, for in being accused of, of, of committing a crime that he really didn't commit because it turns out he was acting in lawful self-defense, but also his character was being attacked. So I think in John's case, he really felt wronged on many levels and, yes, has given us explicit permissions to discuss what happened to him and the facts of his case uh, I think there's uh, several reasons why he did that, not least of which what I just said. Yeah. Go ahead, well, just thinking now back, reflecting on those days, weeks, months, it's turned out to be years of involvement in this case. Uh, young criminal defense lawyers are often asked, why do you do this? You know, why do you do this? And from a lofty constitutional perspective, you always say, well, everyone deserves a fair trial. Everyone deserves their champion. And yet, among us, we're often cynics because after you handle a few years' worth of criminal cases, you, you see it all. You see the things are the best people doing the worst things, the worst people doing the best things, and sometimes the worst people doing the worst things. So you have a tendency to get calloused and suspicious and skeptical. You mean when you're, when you're defending a guy for his uh, violation of parole that you fought so hard to get for him yeah yeah the the guys with the vernacular i guess is the long jacket you know the guys with, with all of the, the prior convictions that you work and work and work and and 15 minutes later they've just been you know handcuffed again but i think for me part of my fascination is a fascination with life and what criminal defense practice brings that i don't know any other practice that does which be can be, I think, in some respects, just summed up is 
when you do this stuff, you every day are thrust into circumstances, people's lives, scenarios, and you just couldn't make it up. You know, you see right. stuff that no matter how vivid your imagination or how much life experience you have, you just can't make it up. And I think this is a story that fits in that category. Well, I think if you were to ask uh, the average concealed carrier, when is it legal or when is it justified to shoot a cop, it's going to be tough to come up with a scenario unless you are painted the picture that Mike is about to paint for us. Well, and even then, <laughs> uh, when, when is it justified? I mean, certainly... Uh, that's a great question. It turns out we're on the other side of this, but not not until John had to go through four years of hell. Uh, certainly, the fact that he was justified in in this very unique set of circumstances that he found himself in uh, doesn't change the fact that he was arrested and charged with three counts of attempted first degree premeditated murder of a law enforcement officer and everything else that he had to go through. So, yeah. uh, you know, justification is kind of a legal concept, but doesn't necessarily change the reality of your life while you're going through it, right? right? And I think what you're saying there, too, is like even even if you're found to be justified, whether it's some sort of exoneration or an acquittal or, or however it resolves positively in your favor, it's not without consequence. It's no. not without legal consequence. And uh, and John spent time in jail, and he endured, like, like enduring the a criminal prosecution um, we've talked about this before, uh, is a nightmare I, I wouldn't want anyone to endure. Except for maybe one person I hold a grudge against. And, and, they'd be <laughs> and you okay. know I'd, how... <laughs> I'd be okay with that. But by everyone else, yes, <laughs> even yeah, the people I don't like. You know, we haven't really talked about the details of who this guy was, and we want to do that. But uh, this is a guy in his mid-60s who had retired after a, a working career and should have been in the backyard playing horseshoes or on the beach sipping pina coladas. Or, or pickleball. Playing, you are. A, <laughs> you have hit me in the heart on that one. I have to say, I am now a pickleball gold well, medalist. Uh, I don't know about fanatic. Certainly, I'm an avid, avid player and enjoying it. And the more you're, I play, the more I enjoy it. It's social. It's uh, some exercise. You're decorated. You're a decorated pickleball player. Well, yeah. a little yeah. success doesn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> pure, so, pure kudos. So, 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 so John Duras is more like someone you should be playing pickleball with, not not a guy who should be. On trial for his life. Not yeah, facing the, the absolute rest of his life in prison times 25, um, being held on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of uh, dollars in, in bail, uh, waking up every day um, wondering uh, what's now his life going to be like and not having any idea, knowing that the full weight, the full force of the state government the resources yeah. of the state government are, are there with the sole objective for the longest time. The sole objective was to convict him of something they should have known. And frankly, I think they probably did know he wasn't legally guilty of. And, and they cover up their own botched sheriff's deputy raid. And without, it seems, a wit of concern or a hint of second guessing or second thinking about the fact this guy would spend the rest of his life in prison for them to get their way. Yeah, and I think their way was simply we don't look that bad. I mean, if you really if you really so, parse so, it so, down. So before you get into that that whole that's kind of sick, motivation right? there. You think about that. Before we'll put a guy I'm sorry, Sean, but it, that, we put a guy in prison um and 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 put oh, probably a million dollars, no no kidding, of resources into this from the state over the years. Uh just so we don't look that bad. 
<laughs> what? It's a, it's a PR trial with a man's uh, life hanging in the balance, like his freedom hanging in the balance. So before we get any further into the weeds on, on the intricacy of this case, Mike, I need to have you give me a, a five minute or less walkthrough on the the main beats so, about what happened here. Sh- sure. So Don talked a little about who he was. I mean, it's true. This guy was a retired GM mechanic from from Detroit. And, and, he, and the thing that's kind of interesting about John is... I don't see this in any way to be demeaning. I say it in a positive way. He's, he's kind of an everyman, you know? He's, he's, he's the guy you want. He's your uncle. He's your grandpa. He's your dad. He's your friend. Um, he did have a concealed weapon permit. He, his criminal history was like zilch. Uh, he had a, he moved to Brevard County, Florida, uh, near Cocoa Beach to retire. Uh, he even picked up a part-time job, was running a nice house there. And was working over at the port, uh, which is nearby. That's where the, by the way, where the space shuttles take off, uh, most of them in in the country. He liked to go to church. He liked to watch Jeopardy. He worked. Yes, he liked to watch. Yeah, he liked to watch Jeopardy, eat meatloaf, and go to church. I mean, it's just true. He lived a pretty simple life. And uh, he had a niece that it was his brother's daughter, and she was an adult. She was in her forties. Had had a a bit of a problem with uh, keeping a, a stable home and. Uh, even a uh, drug issue and things like that. And that. That's an understatement. I don't mean to cut in here, but as that's an understatement to say she had a bit of a problem. She had a chronic, lifelong struggle. Sometimes it was worse than others, but it was more than a bit of a problem, and she was always in need of help from someone. And Mike's soft-selling it because this is a woman who knew she was going to be arrested when she came to testify on behalf of her uncle who had... had taken her in and was facing criminal charges to protect her. So she, she, she's a troubled person with a disease. Like, I've never understood addiction until I saw her explain it on the stand. But, but so... She is, had more spine and more integrity than a whole lot of witnesses I've seen testify solely because she showed up knowing that by the end of the day, when she testified to tell the truth about what her uncle had gone through what she had gone through leading up to this. She knew that before the day was over, she would be handcuffed and sent and taken to jail. And, yeah. and came from a, from another state to do that where she otherwise wouldn't have been facing any yeah, sort of criminal prosecution. My hat's off to her. And, and, and on that note, I just, when we're looking for lessons for concealed carriers, the, the consequences are not yours alone. Great when point. you take That's someone else's life, the, the way it affects your family, who may have to have their lives interrupted and their skeletons dragged out of the closet in order to to testify, perhaps, you know, by subpoena, <laughs> sometimes in a, in your case, it turns everyone's life upside down. Well, yeah, I mean, not to mention, you know, in, in a self-defense case, you're talking about incredible resources that go into this. Uh, it's it, it's a financial strain. It's a strain on your on your spouse, on your kids, on everybody. Yeah. Not to mention you, and you might be sitting in jail while waiting because you can't afford your bill, whatever. But yes, it's true. Guys, so there's, Mar- you're, there's Mary. Yeah. You're, you're right. I am soft-selling it. I'll tell you what. Everything you said, but also because she's somebody that I've grown to care a lot about and respect very much. And I think that her addictions were beyond, in some ways, her own control, and I think it was a disease. But the bottom line is, uh, John was asked by his family to take her in. She also lived nearby and didn't have a place to live. He was hesitant to do that, didn't want to take her in at first because he knew that she was trouble. I don't think he knew uh, what the extent of her addiction was. 
uh, it turned out she started prostituting. I don't think that he was aware of that either um, when he took her in. But in any event, he did take her in at the behest of his sister and his and and frankly his brother. And she did. She began uh, prostituting out of that house and in other places, mainly when John wasn't there. And the police got wind of this because the second in command to the, to the sheriff in, in the county happened to live across the street by just a, a bad set of circumstances, had his eye on that house. Noticed some traffic. Noticed traffic coming in and out and basically tasked unofficially what's called the Special Investigations Unit uh, to kind of keep an eye on the house. Well, of course, the Special Investigations Unit, it turns out, is just a bunch of uh, law enforcement uh, agents who are doing vice crimes. They don't have special training for the most part, uh, but they're basically dealing with prostitution and drugs and things of that nature. Uh, they get to wear cool um, vests and stuff too. And a lot of undercover work. Undercover work, yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so what happened uh, is that a month before the shooting, they uh, went online, saw a, a back page ad that uh, Mary had put on there. Uh, advertising some sort of massages or whatever. They set up a, a con- back page doesn't exist anymore, by the way, for those listening. It's uh, like a, it was kind of like a Craigslist only for, for sex was the idea. The FBI shut it down a few years ago. Anyway, it was an online thing. They set up a sting. They met her at a CVS pretending to be, you know, somebody looking for some sexual favor. They jump out of the bushes basically and say, ha ha, Mary, we got you. And they arrest her for a second degree mis misdemeanor solicitation she doesn't put up a fight no, no. She, she just goes all right you got me and she goes in and yeah you know. so fast forward a month later and prostitution is a misdemeanor it's the lowest in florida uh solicitation is what she was charged with is the lowest level criminal offense we have it's a second degree misdemeanor right. it's enhanceable but that's beside the point so a month later uh they're training a new guy on the special investigations unit turns out he had been in that role for four days had never done a prostitution uh, situation had never actually gone to anyone's home either and uh, because the other guys on the team knew that mary was an easy target they said hey this is a good one for you to cut your teeth on they were doing a controlled uh staying operation at a local motel by the way where they were actually asking people to come to them they had both things going they had female cops per- uh, pretending to be prostitutes where they would lure you know uh customers in and so the and catch a, a predator style, yeah, bust them when he comes in the door. Again, yeah. not, no child stuff, but just regular. And then they jump out of the... They, I'm, it's funny because we took, I don't know how many depositions in this case, over 20. But yeah, this is what they would do. They'd jump out of like basically the, the bathroom uh, shower curtain, you know. Ha oh, we got gotcha. you. And then they like take this guy down for like a second degree misdemeanor. So, so Mike, clarify a controlled sting, basically meaning that this was organized within the department. They had roles assigned, uh, personnel assigned. They would get leads on who these uh, alleged prostitutes might be from looking at the ads and responding, engaging often in text messaging with the individuals where they would negotiate whatever sexual act or favor they were seeking, maybe even discuss the price of what that would involve. And then eventually it would get to where are we going to do this, a location. So the controlled aspect of the sting was that they had designated and set up a local hotel motel for that purpose. Yeah. So yeah, everybody they, was there. It was controlled. They had it several was, rooms that particular night, mm-hmm. too. And I believe the FBI was even involved for other reasons. Yeah. So it was adequately uh, manned, so to speak. Yes. They, they had enough people there, backup. They had everybody they needed, well, regardless like, of what happened. When, when you see a sports car commercial, they say, 
closed course professional driver, right? They've got a closed course. They've got a, a, they control most of the variables at this hotel. Yeah, but what I think was interesting about the way they were doing it is that they had two different rooms that we know were like the staging rooms, right? Where one would be a female cop pretending to be a, a prostitute, and another would be um, a male uh, undercover cop who is pretending to be somebody looking for sex. So they'd be luring prostitutes into one you know, room and then luring guys looking for a prostitute into another. And they were just doing this all night. Right. Now, this particular time, they saw Mary's ad on Backpage and said to this this new special investigations agent, hey, she doesn't put up a fight. We just arrested her a month ago. Uh, just go ahead and start playing around with her. You know, text the number and pretend like you want some sort of sexual thing. So he did. But what's weird is that this text went on for like three hours it went from six to nine by the time this all happened it went to like 9 30 uh and there were uh, you know basically two of the agents were in on it the guy texting and this other one who it was his main idea to even do this uh and mary they wanted to get her to come to this hotel the motel and she said no she wasn't gonna do that she wasn't going to travel to meet anybody and basically she just didn't care she was like move on but they kept pushing her pushing her pushing her and finally she said all right fine come over here now at the time john was at church uh, you know it's just not an exaggeration or a funny point he was literally at like a wednesday night service and um because the texting had gone on so long they didn't show up uh at her house they finally finally there was an agreement made okay a certain amount of money for a certain sexual act and uh, the the undercover agent said he would go. But, well, but they're focused on Mary because their boss lives a couple doors down. So they were really they really wanted to get her that night. It was a couple things. One is they wanted to continue to get her because it looked good in front of the boss, and two because she was an easy target to train a new guy. Right, but they're but when they make the decision to go to her house instead of bringing her to the controlled environment of the hotel that they've got. Now they're they're kind of changing the scenario of what they do. Not, they're not only changing the scenario of what they do. It turns out that they had never done it before in the history of Special Investigations Unit. There was not uh, an example that the Brevard County Sheriff's Office could point to where for a prostitution, a, a misdemeanor prostitution bust without a warrant... Uh, where they would go to someone's home. If they did, and if that were normal, they wouldn't have had the controlled setup at the motel, right? That's how they do it. They don't just go out in the middle of the night to people's homes. So it was aberrant, um, for sure. And But they wanted to get her. They were sort of in on it. And uh, so that's what happened. And, uh, and, so, and, and from a legal perspective, now you have sheriff's deputies at night in plain clothes having a newbie go up to a private residence to affect a warrantless arrest for a misdemeanor. Is that a fair depiction of what's going on here? Yeah, and, and this might be in the weeds, but it's also, I, I contend and have long contended that that's an illegal arrest for a couple of reasons. You can't arrest somebody on a misdemeanor without a warrant for a crime you didn't witness, with a couple exceptions, domestic violence, battery, things like that. And they didn't. Um, and so, in any event, the whole thing was made up because it was through text messages. No money had been exchanged. Beside the point, the main guy shows up in, like, a old Acura or something like that, unmarked. It was, I think it was his personal car. And he asked the, the, the two other special investigations unit, um, two other agents, to come with him. The guy whose idea it was. And uh, basically a, a third agent who had nothing to do with this the entire time. 
And it's kind of sad that way because it really wasn't his idea or anything. He was just going, you know, they needed a third guy. So the two of them rode in a truck. The other two uh, agents rode in an unmarked vehicle and parked down the street in the, in the shadows. And uh, the new agent pulled up right in front of the house. And he was in a Under Armour t-shirt and jeans and said, I'm here. She said, all right, come on up to the door. He walks up, knocks on the door. And uh, she opens the door and, and says, come on in. And what happens then is is really just a, a, a tragic comedy of errors. Uh, she thinks it's a, a guy off the internet trying to have sex with her. She invites him in. John, by the way, had just gotten home some like less than half an hour earlier. She had intended to do this before. Her room was in the front of the house. His was in the back. He was in the back of, of the house. That's where Jeopardy's funny. He was watching Jeopardy and trying Eating to eat meatloaf. meatloaf. Yeah. yeah. Uh, didn't even know what was going on. And uh, she invites this guy in. He reaches in. And grabs her arm and then forcefully uh, attempts to yank her out of the house. Uh, so at this point, she thinks that this guy off the internet that's trying to have sex with her is now kidnapping her. Right. And I'm convinced that she did not have any idea that he was a sheriff's deputy. No. And and, and, and that, there was dispute that way. He says, of course, that he pulled out a badge from underneath his shirt and said, hey, hang on. Uh, actually, Mary, you're under arrest, and uh, come with me. That that doesn't fit any of the facts uh, in the case. It doesn't fit her reaction or her reaction after the fact. It doesn't fit uh, the way he acted. Uh, it doesn't fit the way that the other two agents ended up responding. Mm. Uh, not, none of that makes any sense. Um, in any event, I don't really care what he did. She had no idea. In her mind, she it was about as terrifying of an event that she could imagine and probably one that she had thought could be a reality in her life uh given that the work that she was in well she comes in. across some shady customers yeah you know combined with the uh the prostitution stuff and of course the what you have to do in order to get drugs that aren't prescribed to you the right. people you have to come across and uh, how you you acquire that stuff on the street no doubt there are lots of people that she's crossed paths with in her life that were more than capable of doing exactly what she feared was happening right then. Yeah, so as you pointed out, Mike, uh, John is in the back of the house. He doesn't know what's going on anyway. He doesn't know who that is at the door. He doesn't know whether it's a police officer or not. And even, like you said, if uh, if there was some announcement that she didn't hear, he wasn't going to hear it either. No, that's for so sure. The, the bottom line was she had no idea, and all of the evidence is consistent with that, and there's no possibility that uh, John would have known any different than what he was led to believe by what happened now, as you're going to explain. Yeah, so next thing you know, she's uh, actually doing everything she can to not be yanked forcibly out of the house. Now, it's 930 at night. The particular setting was that there's no real lights in the front, um, and it's very uh, dark in the yard. So it's hard to, to make out really anything but shadows, except for across the street, there's a couple lights. Uh, so what you have is her literally grabbing onto the door jam and the door frame to prevent from being ripped out. And this guy never let her go. I mean, he testified that he just never let her go. In fact, he at some point called for backup and the other two agents came uh, around. And now the, the guy who initially, it was his idea, uh, grabbed her other arm. And, and now it's the, the agent that initially grabbed her and, and this other agent and two men end up forcefully grabbing her out of the house past the front porch area which is small and into the front yard by force all the while she's screaming for her uncle to save her uh she's screaming john john help as if her life depended on it because in her mind it does it does and so he hears this blood curdling scream 
from his niece, who's obviously in trouble. He grabs his Glock and comes out to uh, find out what the hell is going on. Uh, while his niece is screaming, so he he comes out and, and, I, and, I, and I, I've always I have this image in my head that the lights are on now inside his house. It's really dark outside, so if you're outside looking in, you just see John DeRossett marching through his living room with a pistol. It's true. the 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 house was illuminated inside, but but as I said, the the whole outside was right. So John can't see outside, dark. but everyone else I can see can in the see living room. Somebody and, coming. And here's a guy coming. Yeah. And you're, you're three deputies, and you see a guy marching out with a, a pistol in his hand. Yeah. So so he comes out, and what he sees from the threshold of the door out to the front yard is, uh, sure enough, Mary, like a, the shadow of her, and two silhouettes of people. Uh, yanking her into the night and and hears her screaming and just kind of sees this scenario and he says you know what the heck is going on here and shoots his uh, firearm from the front porch in the air one time it's a warning shot yeah he shoots it as a warning shot i think he thought that would do the job he thinks in his mind the warning shot will be enough for them to let her go and uh that'll be that and he doesn't have to kill anybody and and in some ways i get what he what he meant, I don't think he was trying to hurt anyone, and I don't think he wanted to shoot Mary. You know, again, it's his niece, and she's being physically manhandled, and, you know, I, what do you do? It's nighttime and whatever. But tragically, it turns out all three of them turn out to be law enforcement officers, and all three of them, as Don pointed out, happen to be carrying forty caliber Glocks, and they push Mary uh, away, basically, toward John, and very quickly take different positions in the yard, and almost immediately start unloading uh, at John. Uh, one, uh, cent- you know, from John's perspective, center left in the in the middle of the front yard. One almost uh, com- completely parallel to him on the left, and another one toward the right, which would have been the driveway. And all all three of them almost in tandem start shooting. So and, and in my mind, from three different directions. In my mind, because it's so dark. What Durasset sees are are maybe dark figures and muzzle flashes. Yeah, even the other two agents that showed up were in plain clothes, with the exception of black uh, tactical vests that said sheriff, but not in reflective lettering. So uh, they were wearing baseball caps and jeans and a black tack vest. Yeah, and if they were in a shooting stance, you can't read the sheriff on the front of their it, sweater because their out, arms are. In it there. turns out you wouldn't. That's true, but they also had it on their sh- on their arms. To be fair, but you wouldn't have been able to read anything um, because of the lighting. It, yeah. it, and and they were wearing dark clothes. Uh, and of course, the one that was that Mary saw was in we know a black t shirt and jeans. So we had a full on firefight yeah. at a suburban house. A pretty quiet neighborhood. Too. As dark as it's going to get that night. Yeah, so they all start shooting on him, which which Don has said in the past, and I think is is right. It really just confirmed his suspicion, his worst fear, that the people who were actually kidnapping Mary were bad guys that, that were there to do nothing good. Uh, certainly not law enforcement. That would have been the last thing on his mind. And it turns out none of them identified themselves as law enforcement. They just went into basically, basically in their minds, self-defense mode. I mean, they saw a guy come out. They know they're cops. In their head, they're saying, this guy's trying to kill us. In John's mind, he thinks these guys are trying to, you know, uh, burglarize my house and kidnap my niece. It's just, it is a, uh, just a, a totally screwed up situation from top to bottom that was created by law enforcement doing an illegal entry into the house and grabbing a girl out of it in the first place. But so, here's what it led to. Mm-hmm. And, and so all three of them 
start unloading on him. He now confirmed that these are bad guys trying to do... He fires back. He, yeah, he shoots back. And, and one of the... You know, he got shot twice. I, I contend that Mary was grazed once. And uh, one of the law enforcement officers was shot a couple times. Uh, one uh, of the rounds made it under the bulletproof vest and fractured, as hollow points do, and severed an artery. And the, the, the officer tragically almost died right there in the front yard. Yeah, his career as a field deputy was over. And he had a long recovery. Well, his life was almost over. In fact, he did code a couple times. Uh, the other agents at this point, knowing that an officer was down, the firefight uh, ends inside of a minute. Uh, there were over 40 uh, bullet defects in the front of John's house that, that, were, that we know about. There were some inside the house through closets. It's a miracle from God that no one is dead. But... Uh, John went down after being shot a couple times. Mary helped him in, and they ended up calling the police, saying, oh my God, my uncle's been shot, send an ambulance, whatever. Meanwhile, the, the, the law enforcement agents, the three guys, are all there in the front yard, two of them trying to render aid to their friend who's literally dying. And law enforcement quickly is getting, uh, dispatch is getting calls from all three of the agents, plus Mary, and it doesn't take them a minute to put together that the everyone's calling about the same thing. And so they immediately treat Mary and John as suspects and cop killers and actually don't send the ambulance and try to lure them out of the house so they could uh, trap them into some sort of arrest. And never actually, they, Don, they never end up rendering aid to John until 15 minutes later when after they arrest him and throw him on the ground and step on him, they finally put him in an ambulance. Did you ever notice that? Well, I think actually... Once he came out of the house, they came out. By by that time, there must have been, what, 50 people there well, yeah. on, on the scene. He was marched out, I think, put on the ground. I think he may have actually been cuffed and put in a car first. Yeah, he was. There's blood all over that car. Pulled out of the car eventually in an ambulance yeah. and then eventually transported to the hospital where he had surgery. And, yeah, that's, um, what, that's what I'm saying. The whole point mm -hmm. of their 911 call was, we need an ambulance. My uncle's been shot. But yet, that whole thing, and there's kidnappers they just ignored in the that, yard. and there's kidnappers in the yard, mm -hmm. and that whole thing was ignored until, yeah, there was a standoff with loudspeakers, and they didn't understand. I mean, when Don says there was 50 people, that's not an exaggeration, because it was all units respond from every law enforcement agency nearby. So you'd have uh, the Brevard County Sheriff's Office, every, every agent that was on duty that night in the county came. Every agent for Titusville Police Department came, and I don't know if I don't remember if Port St. John had their own little municipal thing, but there were easily fifty people, easily twenty-five units, maybe more that responded, mm -hmm. and uh, and no one cared that John was actually also bleeding out. They arrest him, they put him in the back of a cop car. Well, he doesn't understand what's going on. You know, I don't know, Mike. I guess it's fair to say they don't care. It's certainly not the most important thing. Because now one of their brothers is down. There's a guy in custody yeah. who just shot a police officer in the line of duty. Yes. And all hands on deck, all resources to save his life and to secure the scene and to apprehend the bad guy. And, of course, John is the bad guy in right. their, their eyes. And there's nobody that responds after the shots were fired that's going to think any differently. Who's going to give John the benefit of the doubt at that point? Right. So fortunately, like you said, uh, the police officer, the deputy sheriff that was injured did survive. 
and uh, and John did as well. But of course, what that meant essentially is that was the beginning of the legal case. Yes, and it was that mm-hmm. nice night. By the way, the one who put the cuffs on him, coincidentally, was that neighbor. The second-in-command who came out in his boxer shorts and his own tack vest and his own forty caliber Glock yep. and ended up uh, putting John on the ground and put him in, a, in some other uh, patrol car. But it was that night that the sheriff came out to that neighborhood, maybe an hour later, after after the ambulances had taken off. They put all three of them in different ambulances and took them all to different hospitals, uh, where that was the beginning of it. There was a press conference where he said that John was a, a pimp. That was uh, basically a cop killer that, because they were trying to take his asset, uh, he just would rather kill the police um, than, than, than deal with that. Uh, which, of course, makes no sense uh, at all from a, a logical perspective. We're talking about an arrest for a second-degree misdemeanor taker. I'll bond her out tomorrow if it came down to that. But, of course, that was the, that was the news that was then available to the public. Right. And it made lots of news, and everybody's impression unless they knew differently, and who did? Nobody. Yeah. Nobody knew differently. That's what they saw happen. Yeah. That, that John was a ruthless, callous, purposeful cop killer. Yeah, a cop killer with a motive that, mm-hmm. that he was actually engaged in, 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 in pimping out women. So that, w- that was the backdrop to uh, <laughs> the legal case. Yeah, and so now I want for our listeners to the picture in your mind, like this guy's going to have to ask a, a judge for for bond he's going to be in jail while waiting for this in the care of uh, the same law enforcement agency that he's he's nearly killed one of their they don't know at this point the guy's going to survive uh, and, and he's going to be uh see his legal uh, tr- path is going to lead through a court system yeah. Well, so you're basically that, you're saying the sheriff runs the jail, right? So as soon as he gets out of the hospital, he goes to the jail that the sheriff runs. The sheriff's deputies guard the judge in the very courtroom where his case is going to be tried. That's right? true. And, and it's a unique... I, I and really, they're trying to cover up what they know is a botched raid. Because we find out later that two of the sheriff's deputies were actually clients of hers on their own accord. Not the same, not two of the same three men. But that on his force. Yes, two people, it turns out, were clients of Mary's. Uh, because this became a, a very uh, serious and intricate discovery process case. Which there were many spider investigations uh but from our end and also from law enforcement. And they got her books and found out two of their own were seeing her, that she was getting tips from law enforcement at times and all but, kinds but of things. But nobody in the criminal justice system in Brevard County has any incentive to give us any lenience once we're in his defense. There is political pressure from the highest authority in this county that pushes down through the entire criminal justice system against this defendant who got wrapped up in a botched outside of policy raid on his house. That's right, where, where if the truth came out and he wasn't convicted, they look really bad. All right, guys, that's the podcast. Thanks for listening through to the end. Next time, we're going to be back with Don West and Michael Pinella, and we're going to talk about how the legal defense started coming together 
and what extraordinary obstacles that we faced while we fought for justice for John DeRozan. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care.